Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner Ben Acker and our friend, the TV showrunner Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! We have a great group. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves on the microphone. Uh, tell us some of the shows you've worked on, where we've seen your name in the past, and uh, the things you have coming up, because you all have things coming up. Sally, let's start with you. Um, Sally Patrick, and I am a writer-producer who started, I guess, gosh, like 10 years ago now, on Dirty Sexy Money. Revenge was another big show I worked on for four years, and now I'm doing Dynasty for the CW, and it yes. premieres in about a week and a half. Congrats. We'll, we will talk. <laughs> we're going to talk Dynasty. Oh, good. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Uh, I am Lindsay Shockley, and I'm a writer-producer. Uh, for the past four years, I've been on Blackish. Before that, I was on HBO's Hello, Ladies, uh, and Fox has been in Kate, and some other shows. Um, and yeah, Blackish premieres on Tuesday, October 3rd. Great. And you were on Trophy Wife, right? Yes, I was on Trophy Wife. Yeah, yes. with our, our friend uh, uh, Emily, who's been oh, here a bunch of times. she's the best. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. That, that was, was a great wonderful show. show. Yeah. yeah. Sarah? I'm Sarah Gamble. I'm also a writer-producer. There's a trend. Um. <laughs> it's a theme day. <laughs> I work on two shows right now. I work on The Magicians for Sci-Fi. We're going into season three, which premieres in January. And I'm working on a new show called You, which will premiere in March on Lifetime. Uh, I spent seven seasons on Supernatural. Wow. And before that, I spent one season on uh, a show called Eyes. That was great. What was that? And canceled in five episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. What was that show? Uh, it was a PI show starring Tim Daly. Great. Um, and yeah, was this your first? Like, that was my first gig. gig. Yeah. That's amazing. And and then I went to Supernatural, and then I just set up camp, <laughs> right. and I wouldn't leave. <laughs> nice. Um, and I also worked on a show called Aquarius. Um, yeah. In there, right around the time of the first season, the pilot of Magicians, we were doing that here in LA. Right. Well, let's talk about you for a moment. About so this is the you, problem about this. You. Hashtag you. There's uh, a lot of is, air quotes in the yeah. writers. <laughs> <laughs> this is about you, not yeah. you. Um, we are going to talk about you and you and you, but right now I want to talk <laughs> totally. about the show you, the show uh, you yes. which you have coming on Lifetime <laughs> mm-hmm. next year. Um, this is you're going to have two shows on the air. Yes. That you are uh, running, or are you running uh, or co-running both? Or are you? Actually I am. Running? Yeah. 
Um, and you is based on other material. But this uh-huh. is your show. Like, tell me about this show and how you got involved with it. Because you've been on Magicians now for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, so, so how did you come about? Uh, Greg Berlanti emailed me and said, I have this book. Read it. I'm reading it. I'm super addicted to it. I'm sending it to all my friends. Everyone is freaking out. Just read it. And if you see what I'm seeing, call me. And within about 30 pages, I got why he was so excited about the book. It's written by a woman named Caroline Kepnes. Um, It's a huge bestseller. And I can really understand why. It's very sticky and um, dark and funny. It's inside the mind. We call it a a love story about a stalker. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the elevator log line is maybe like Dexter meets 500 Days of Summer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's deep inside the mind of this guy who is just such a romantic. And when he sees the perfect girl, you know, he does what we all do. He Googles. He looks her up. He maybe gets her a dress. Then he breaks in. It kind of goes from there. And, you know, if she has problems in her life, he wants to help her with those problems. He just crosses lines we would not cross. So it's a very interesting show. It's sort of about the weird stalkery underside of love stories and romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. Like, if you you changed up just the music on Say say Anything, it's like a stalker (laughs) with a fucking boombox standing under her window, right? We talk a lot about the, like, I like to watch you sleep, I feel protective thing from Twilight. Oh, my God. If I may say. Like, I loved it. Creepy. I thought it was super romantic. I think it's also sort of destroyed a generation of girls. (laughs) Right, right. right. So that's what that show is. I mean, that's dealing with a lot of sort of, like, it's dealing with a lot of complicated issues. Yes. Right? Like mm-hmm. and, and to enter it through the guy's point of view, through the stalker's point of view, yeah. is a tricky proposition. And I assume the book is done that way. I haven't read the book. It is. It's sort of in second person in that it's oh, it's like an, the inner monologue inside his head and it's always you, 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 as in the girl, her name mm-hmm. is Beck. He's mm-hmm. he's always talking to the Beck in his head. If he sees something interesting, he's telling her about it. If he noticed something weird about her, he's sort of deconstructing her. Like, I've noticed you really need a lot of likes on your Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, right? Huh. Um, so That's the it, that... It, you know, so and and I'm seeing the director's cut probably tomorrow of the first episode because uh, we went to st- straight to series. Right. Um, it's it's kind of a, a device that lends itself to a TV script with voiceover, mm. um, but the exact tonal balance is going to be something I think we're going to work really hard to find. Yeah, this was something I was curious about. Mm-hmm. Like you've put together a writers' room presumably yes. by this time because you're you're sort of deep in it. Um, are there gu- like what guidelines can you give them? What is the thesis to this where you can kind of paint a target for them? Well, there's a couple of them. Mm-hmm. I-, I think from the beginning we all got in there and we just talked about the most fucked up shit we had ever done in a relationship. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I mean, my way in it, to it, and I guess I can own it now because it was very many years ago. I was in a relationship and I... Um, was feeling insecure in the relationship and there was a day that I woke up and he went to go to do something, work on the weekend and I was alone in his apartment and I was like, I know this motherfucker has a diary somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, for the record, I got into therapy that day because that was That's a line. I was like, I was you snooping. You know, I did have a self-awareness. So I was like, this huh? is a violation and if I'm feeling this weird, but we all have stories like that. Like the, the process of hiring the writer's room was like an endless parade oh. of brilliant oh. writers sitting down to tell me about all the times they had stalked someone or been stalked. Because <laughs> it's a line that like, we have to figure out for ourselves. Um, and this show is interesting because this guy, his line is 
way further than your line would ever be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's there's a, a near universal feeling that love will make us do really fucked up shit, right. um, and that we turn into a version of ourselves that we maybe don't even recognize. And that's what the conversation in the writers' room is about. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and and it feels like this is you're giving some depth, some humanity to a thing that could just be mm-hmm. sort of a lifetime movie of the week in the bad sense, like in the 80s <laughs> sense, right? Like, they don't do that anymore. They're actually making great shows, but mm-hmm. this could have been sort of a throwaway thing, but there's, it feels like there's going to be, you have something to say. It doesn't, it doesn't feel throwaway to anyone who's no, making it. Although I can't imagine. we love that we're on the traditional home of stalker mm-hmm. stories, <laughs> and there's like a subversive goodness really to that. There is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but no, I have a lot to say about it. I, I think... I was having a drink with the author of the book in New York not long ago when we went there to begin filming, and we were talking about all of the things that are, to us, opaque or even unknowable about what goes on in guys' minds Hmm. and the situations we have been in where we don't know what they're thinking. And I I think the average woman walks through the world with a lot of fear about what might be in... Because we're we're physically in danger a certain amount of the time. Um, And I think part of what Caroline did in writing this book is try to get inside the head of someone who would do really questionable shit to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is important information for women, right? Absolutely. But like, you know, you and I have worked together a little bit on something that had like a horror element. Right. We were on Supernatural together for a while. And um, as, a, as somebody who I think in my heart and soul is a horror writer, mm-hmm. I want to write about what scares me. Yeah. Um, and I know that what is frightening is compelling and entertaining for an audience. So I always think that's a good place to start. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a very real place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, now, <laughs> Sally. <laughs> so related. Um, well, this is, this is the thing I wanted to talk about is like, where do you start with this show? Where do you start with Dynasty? <laughs> Well, you started People the have this idea yeah. of what this show is, uh, mm-hmm. and the original ran for some time, right? I'm not yeah. very familiar with it. Uh, for many seasons, I think eight seasons. Um, yeah, it's, you know, going back to any, like when you're doing a reboot, obviously important to find what makes the reboot able to stand its own two feet um, so many years later. But going back to the first season of Dynasty, it's, it's kind of surprising um, because it's not what you, with the public perception of, uh, of D- Dynasty is today, like yeah. the cat fights and the shoulder pads. There's actually great character development that first season. And it's really strong. The architecture and the bones of the show were really established in that first year. And that's going back to that first season really inspired us to say, like, you know, <laughs> this can stand today. <clears throat> it can yeah. endure. Um, and again, what was the what was the guiding principle? Again, you put together a staff and sort of had <laughs> to give them a target, and I'm sure they all walked in like many of us do. With it is the cat fights and the shoulder pads. Yes, exactly. And then having having to give all of that substance. So in 2017, it was important to look around at the world today and see what you know. The original Dynasty had issues that it was pushing the envelope on as far as homosexuality um, and gender divides at that point. Um, today, we're still facing some of those issues, but how to kind of shift the POV to be modern. And um, for instance, you know, Blake's son, Stephen, in the original show, was in and out of the closet, really struggling with his sexual mm-hmm. identity. And for us in 2017, we wanted a guy to be like proud and out and someone that um, represented 
today, basically. Sure. But then that, basically, starting from those like core changes in our main family, everything spun out. So like his main relationship from the original was with Sammy Joe, who was Heather Locklear, who was delicious and spandex <laughs> and boombox toting. The best. Um, the theme. the best. <laughs> yeah. And so we, you know, had to figure, well, if that's a core relationship and we wanted to honor that arc, we had to change Stephen's love interest to be a man. Um, so now he's played by this amazing pot-stirring Latino. Um, it's Rafael de Fuente from Empire, who's so mm-hmm. fabulous. Um, and, you know, it, it, but again, all the changes kind of came organically when we went back to change the original architecture um, and then resetting the show in Atlanta mm-hmm. brought a certain diversity um, because we wanted to show, you know, old money versus new money and how it, it you know, I'm from Atlanta, so I grew up with, you know, oh, basically in Buckhead or Sandy Springs and in one neighborhood that is based on old money. And then, like, Amer- you know, Atlanta's gentrifying all over the place and um, and we wanted the Colbys, who are like the main competition for the Carringtons, to represent the other side of Atlanta, basically. Huh. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, was all of this baked <laughs> into your pitch for the show? How did it start to come? Exactly. Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, it started with actually Crystal, who was played by Linda Evans in the original, and was like a, a Nordic goddess and plucked <laughs> from the secretarial pool, and she really had no backstory. She had no flaws. She was the perfect woman, which is a way to go for sure. But we, you know, modern women, I feel like we have more baggage and we have more flaws and we wanted to kind of represent that in her character and what it means to have a certain backstory you're trying to hide because you're trying to fit into this perfect world in the 1% bubble. And um, and so that, again, that started with Natalie Kelly, who we met first and and got her into the role and then we kind mm-hmm. of cast around her. Oh, how do you start to draw these characters? And, you know, again, this still has to be a CW show where mm-hmm. they're mostly characters in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're mostly, well, they're all very good looking. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a soapy aspect, but oftentimes there's a little more going on, right? Mm-hmm. There's actually something to say. And I think you've talked about the something to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there a tone to hit in this where it's not just, again, the dynasty that we think of? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about how to um, make it a little more relevant. As you know, talking about CW of it, it's yeah, this could exist on an, any other network. As like ABC, obviously, comes to mind. But um, but CW felt like the interesting place to try it on because you know, with with Instagram and with Twitter, um, I feel like the younger generations are more savvy than certainly I ever was at twenty or in yeah. my twenties, um, and politically savvy, um, aware of of racial divides and gender divides, etc. So I, we did want to just have a splashy, soapy show without substance. So we've been kind of saying it's like the Teen Vogue. It's like show up for the cat fights and stay for the substance. <laughs> That's so great. It's like um, so again because we didn't want to talk down to anyone mm-hmm. by by being uh, preachy, but we wanted to also not just have you know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Teen Vogue Trojan Horse is a great yes, exactly. way to put it. Trojan Horse really is good. perfect, yeah. <laughs> um, Lindsay, let's talk to you. Uh, you were telling me as you came in that you had a long day. Uh, you've been on Blackish for from, from the beginning? From the beginning, yeah, yeah, since season one, which is really cool. And there's been a team of us, of, like about eight writers, that have been there from the beginning, which is really nice. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, and we have a huge staff. There's 16. Uh, yeah. And we've been as big as like 18 or 19 at times, which is really nice. We're also uh, doing 22, 24 episodes this yeah, year, Yeah, right? we do 24 episodes every year, um, which is like a great problem to have. Uh, but obviously you need a, a lot of stories to like keep, yeah. you know, that that kind of level of, um, you know, 
quantity. Yeah, <laughs> quantity and quality. On quality. this show, quality. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. But we've talked to Kenya, we've talked to yeah. Groff, uh, we've had a few blackish writers in here, but you've yeah. worked on a bunch of shows before this. I'm curious to I hear did. how this show is different, and it seems like everyone is so happy there. It's a life-changing show. What and, do you and, think and, these guys are doing differently? I think Kenya Barris, who created it, um, the one thing I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of different showrunners, but one thing he really has is this ability to be really vulnerable in public and really honest in the room. (laughs) And even when that is quote-unquote unlikable or not PC, uh, he's fearless in that way. That he, his voice is so clear and he hired a bunch of people who are really able to listen and take that voice in and all be, you know, trying to execute his vision. And I think that's why the show has really spoken to so many people because it is so specific, but that speaks mm-hmm. to the universal. And he mm-hmm. found that way to bring everyone to the table. Like the first day of our job, everyone was super nervous because the pilot was so good and we wanted to do such a good job. And I felt like such an outsider mm-hmm. looking in and I felt like this huge responsibility, like do not fuck this up. <laughs> um, and he said to everyone, he's like, I want this show to be about the things that we're all talking about in the privacy of our own homes, but mm-hmm. we're kind of afraid to talk about in the street. Mm-hmm. And I think the show and ABC, to their credit, was very supportive of that. And they let us do some kind of edgier material than ABC was doing at the time. Yeah. Um, and now in season you know, three and four, they've really let us talk about you know, police brutality in a big way and Trump in a big way and things that you know, probably would have been off limits as a first mm-hmm. season show. Um, but so it's been this really beautiful alchemy of people who all have felt you know, other and different and disenfranchised in different ways, not just because of race, but gender or Mm -hmm. politics or culture. Um, And it's such a beautiful mix of people who maybe wouldn't have met in normal life just because of the way life divides you and you kind of, you know, don't cross paths with people that you, so it's this really, really nice thing where everyone was able to hear each other's truths and kind of just say like, great, like, let's just run with that. Like we're clearly like we're tapping into something and let's go for it. So, yeah. What do you see, um, especially early on, what did you see as your role in this show? Again, you've been in a bunch of different kinds of rooms and I'm sure you bring something the same and different to each one. But in this group of people, what did you see as your role? Um, you know, it's so interesting. Every, at least for a comedy, like every new show, it's like you're entering a new family, and maybe it's the same in drama too, because um, you're sitting around the room with these people for you know 12 hours a day, and you're talking about deeply personal things, which I think is what we're all doing. Um, and I think on some shows, it's very introverted, and I've been in like very quiet rooms where everyone like waits till they have like the perfect thought and then they say it. I've been in very loud rooms where people talk (laughs) over each other and it's very frenetic Uh and everyone's trying to like be like you know the loudest voice but this room was very different that it was you know one person talking at a time telling their story and then it was a group of people that all yes anded it and would like build together uh, which is like what you want that's like the dream Um, and I mean my role probably on every show I've ever been on is I I have a sunny weirdness (laughs) so I'm I'm picking up on that right now (laughs) also check out Lindsay's pilot sunny weirdness (laughs) I would watch the whole shit out of that show (laughs) so I I bring that sort of like I'm the, <laughs> I'm the person that like keeps morale up, but sure. also like I have really dark thoughts, so I'll often say that. <laughs> my nickname is the sniper because Kenya says you never see it coming from oh me. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, maybe that's my that's role. Really I'm, funny. I'm the sniper. <laughs> was there was it easy for you to jump in and like when it was time to tell your story or a story in that first year? Did that come easily to you? 
No. I mean, of course. I mean, I think everybody's really insecure. Or maybe not. Maybe just maybe <laughs> well, most every, writers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone who's been in here talking to me on these microphones <laughs> has been really insecure. Yeah. You like suddenly you hear other people's stories and you're like, oh, they're just way more fascinating than I am. Like, oh, everyone's going to find out that I'm an imposter. Um, no, I think I was, I was really... Um, nervous uh, and and I wanted to make sure that I you know wanted to honor you know the stories about Dre Johnson and his family and he's trying to navigate basically what his kids are losing by living in kind of a white culture and you know making sure that they still keep in touch with their blackness but also he wants to honor like kind of the millennial the modern nature that like hmm. black and white are mixing in a way culturally and in a beautiful way like that's why the word ish is in the show is that everyone is taking a piece of someone else now yeah. which is nice um, I want to continue to talk about rooms um, Sarah you had an unusual experience on Supernatural which yes. wasn't a room show no um, and we've had uh, Eric here and we've talked to a, a number of writers from the show over the years who mm-hmm. have sort of we've, so we've covered that yeah um, but I'm curious to hear like what you were on that show for seven years yes what did you take from that experience and then Suddenly you're running a show, and now mm-hmm. two shows. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you learn from Supernatural that you were able to bring to these experiences? Or maybe there was nothing. There was a lot. Yeah. As far uh, as show running. I mean, yeah, like no, no, writing, a lot. Like, that's boot camp. Yeah. Uh, um, it's true. It was, it's, it's a lot of independent study on Supernatural. I have no idea what it's like over there now. It's been a few years. but I think it's more room-heavy uh, yeah. than it was in the past. I mean, I was the first person to step up and take over when Eric left. Yeah. Um, and so I very much felt like, as somebody who is as green as could be at being a showrunner, that I that the best course of action in a well-oiled season six machine was to kind of step into the existing mm-hmm. culture. And that was a lot of, you know, we met in the room just a little bit, and then we went off on our own. I think the the thing that I took away from that, because the, the rooms now that I'm in are a lot more room-intensive rooms, yeah. um, some ownership of each episode is helpful for writers, um, I think. Or, and I have noticed that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everyone coming together and everyone kind of being a team and a unit, figuring out what the show is and what the season looks like is important to me. And feeling like there is group investment, like we're all in it together, and them feeling my loyalty to them and my interest in what they have to say. Um, and then also, at a certain point when we kind of know what the episode is, I really want one writer to know, okay, this is your baby. Mm-hmm. This is the one you get to lose a little bit of sleep over. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and we're here to help you make this an amazing episode. So that's something that I, I took away from Supernatural. That's, yeah. that's really nice. That and how to produce like a lot of show for not a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. um, and for that, I will be eternally grateful <laughs> to Eric and to Bob Singer. Yeah. Who, I mean, they are the best in the game at that. Yeah, I would imagine the production stuff especially. Like, uh, 100%, yeah. Uh, that, that was pretty intense on that show. But mm-hmm. um, are you... Did you find yourself comfortable in running a room when it came time to do that on The Magicians? Yeah. That's great. I like to hear myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like it, that was always there. Like, I feel, and again... Me liking have, to hear myself talk? No. <laughs> having only worked with you briefly, like, uh-huh. it felt like you wanted to do, have that collaborative yeah. aspect, but the, again, you inherited five years of show yeah. that ran in a certain way, and yeah. it made sense to continue running that mm-hmm. way. So, finally getting that opportunity, it's good to hear that it, it came... Like naturally and yeah. you're happy. I think there's no perfect way. I think each show is going to need its own set of guidelines for how episodes are created, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. each show will have like a little percentage of dysfunction. It's like a family, <laughs> sure. right? And you try to make it as 
functional as possible and as easy and drama-free as possible. And I had been in both kinds of rooms, the kind of room that was just me and my whiteboard in my office with maybe one other writer, and the kind that was seven days a week, 10 hours a day, like, you know, hammering, we're going to get shut down, like, a lot of deli, a lot of pizzas, a lot of, like, almost like a comedy room. Yeah. Like that, that sounds really familiar. Um, and uh, you know, so there's a, like an organic process of sort of feeling your way. Like, mm-hmm. what does magicians need? And right. I mean, so much of the battle is in assembling the cast that mm-hmm. is your writer's room, and thinking about how the different writers will work together, and and then also just facilitating every person's ability to speak, whatever that means. Because mm-hmm. some people are shy, and some people don't talk till they have it perfect, no matter how welcoming the room is. And yeah. so I think a lot of the job, I'm still learning it. I'll probably always be learning it. Of course. But I feel like a big part of the, the job of the person who's running the room is to just bring out the best in the other people in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't make a show on your own. You can't. Yeah. I mean, at least I can't. <laughs> um, at least not under the kind of conditions that, uh, you know, the time, the budget, the schedule right. mm-hmm. of the kind of shows that I so far have produced I do not have the luxury of just going away, writing 12 episodes and coming yeah. back. And they probably yeah. wouldn't be as good. Um, so so that's my job, right? Yeah. And it's fun. that's a fun part of the job, I think. I don't mm-hmm. know. What do you think? Uh, I think it is, too. I mean, look, I've been in both kinds of rooms also. Mm-hmm. Um, going from, I was on a procedural. I was on Limitless last year, mm-hmm. um, which was a procedural. And it was, we had a room. Um, but it was mostly when it was your episode, you peel off and kind of go break the case and all those things, hmm. and you pull in a couple of writers. Um, but Dynasty definitely a serialized soap. I mean, yeah. you just have to all be on the same page. You have to all be in the room together, and then you have to be sure to alert the next writer when you're changing things in your script because they sure. affect the next. You know, all that kind of communication is so key. Um, what I really miss about <laughs> now that I'm a showrunner is, is being in the room I mean mm-hmm. you really you know you get your dream but then you're suddenly not a writer any, anymore in a lot of ways like you're still writing of course but but not like you know the temperature changes a little bit when you walk in I'm sure oh of course and there's that too I'm like hey I'm one of you guys <laughs> no, 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 not anymore <laughs> So That's really crazy. funny. It's I a will real say, dynamic change. Yeah. You know, we actually share a floor. I know. Th- I was going to say post, right? Yeah. She has the coolest post production. There are so many dogs. It's kind of a kennel. It's like, <laughs> so when the elevator opens, because Magician's Post is on the same floor as Dynasty Post, and the, yeah. the you know, the, the elevator opens, and it's a poster of like the chick pulling the chick's earring, <laughs> and then like dogs come to greet you. It's the best. That's awesome. We're having a lot of fun over there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to ask both of you guys. I mean, you were on Revenge as mm-hmm. well, um, and and Magicians has this as well. This mm-hmm. highly serialized storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like you need a room, mm-hmm. like you both need a room, and you need to have really strong guidance for that kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. How do you guys juggle that? How do you use your rooms, or how were you used on uh, uh, Revenge? Mm-hmm. Well, I can, as far as right now, um, I can speak to. Even when we had to go in and pitch the season, we yeah. had to like kind of, even though we're only picked up for 13 at first, you have to map out 22 episodes. So coming up with basically a grid that really we had to stick to. Some things move up, of course, but the tent poles you really have to abide by to some degree. Otherwise, you can really lose your way. Mm-hmm. Um, and revenge, I mean, as far as I think the first couple seasons were certainly like that. Um, you know, Mike Kelly, the first year, we had a flash forward in the pilot that we knew always what we were building to. Mm-hmm. By episode 15, it was going to be, you know, the death of 
whoever was killed on the beach or whatever. So, um, you've never seen the show. It's no, I, I'm, <laughs> whoever it was. I'm like, why am I not giving spoilers? It was so old school. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so sure. I think having the temples and then again, the communication, um, and, and, but like you said, you're always responsible for your episode and you have to drive the bus when you're up yeah. because otherwise I think people do become dependent. Like you never take the ownership Therefore, you never have the the tracking ability to like you know really feel all the characters' POVs mm-hmm. throughout the episode. Even if you we have to do a gangbang, if you're behind schedule, you still have to have the one person who's combing through everything, so it doesn't feel like a gangbang. Is, I know we not, use group right now, right? Well, we said Voltron <laughs> on Limitless That's and great. Frankenstein on other shows, but I still I like go back to gangbang too. Well, Berlanti. I started and during yeah. Sex and Money was a Berlanti show, and I feel I don't know if he coined the word. Let's not put it on him, but yeah. I just know that. <laughs> That that's what we said. He might say too. group right now too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty, still pretty sure he does. <laughs> yeah, I can't change it. Um, I wanted to hear about uh, Hello Ladies, which had sort of a similar thing. I didn't even realize that had a writing staff. For some reason, I thought it was, it was all tiny, Stephen. tiny, tiny. Yeah. There were only four of us, um, okay. in addition to Stephen Merchant and Lee uh, Eisenberg and James yes. Stupniski who were running it, and then there were just four writers. Um, and but that this was, also had that serialized aspect. That's the only show I've ever written on yeah. serialized, which is why mm-hmm. like, I'm so you know. Impressed, How was like, that hearing. broken? Um, it was really cool. It was so autobiographical for Steven that um, he pitched the entire series to HBO. Kind of, he had it kind of mapped out in his head what the eight episodes were going to be. And so before The Room ever started on our first day, he kind of took us through like what his life was like when he moved to L.A. and oh, trying to meet funny. women. And, you know, it's a very different culture than, you know, the U.K. Um, and just all of the kind of foibles and like things that he tried that didn't work. And he was very just like honest and vulnerable about it. Um, and so we kind of just mapped out what these eight episodes would be because um, Christine Woods, who was on the show with him, was kind of the, mm-hmm. the girl of like, will they, won't they? And we knew we wanted to slow burn that and we wanted, you know, to really explore, you know, what it feels like to be six foot seven and <laughs> trying to That's pick great. up models oh in this God. like horrible LA world <laughs> that we live in. Um, and luckily, like lots of bad things have just happened to Steven in real life. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like he walked into a glass door that he didn't see at like a huge party with so like good. all these celebrities and it shattered and he was bleeding. Oh, so there was like, there was lot to pull, a lot to pull from. <laughs> um, but that was a really interesting room because the way Steven looked at comedy. He wanted his parents in the UK to understand it. He wanted someone in Kansas to understand it. And so he wanted, he really wanted to vet the material to make sure it was speaking to. He always would say, I want to have the universal observation of humanity, that mm-hmm. we've all sat at dinner parties with the person that you can't get a conversation going with, mm-hmm. or we've all been you know, at the wedding where you're trying to like find like the one person that might be single to go home with. Like He really wanted everything to feel like everyone had understood those sort of opportunities. So it was really interesting. We would all sit. We all had monitors. It was one of those rooms where everyone oh, had wow. their own monitor. Yeah. You had final draft up. Mm-hmm. Um, and very thoughtful introspective room where we would just go line by line and Mm. if anything was bumping someone we would say what about this like could this be more clear could this be like set a little sharper Um, and then once we had all those eight episodes we had two rooms and so we Mm. had kind of the story room and then the joke room Mm. and so I learned uh, an incredible amount of you know joke writing on that show we would write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Hmm. jokes for every episode that would either get used or not get used but he just liked to have a lot of options interesting more so so than even on some of these other network comedies that you had done yeah I mean network definitely you always have a a punch up room too so you're you're, but not as much on that show in particular um, it was just yeah it was just a really great education in 
um, being able to look at a line a thousand different ways to come up with a thousand different jokes. And mm-hmm. it was, it was like, I just consider oh, it great. such a huge I want to talk about the other room, the story room, yeah. and I think you guys can all speak to this, which is mm-hmm. creating discrete episodes out mm-hmm. of this serialized mm-hmm. story, which... Mm-hmm. To me, it seems so difficult. Like, at least in The Magicians, you have some good and evil fight going on. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, like, even so, it's the soap opera, it's the characters is the reason people watch. Yeah. And, like, Dynasty, to me, mm-hmm. seems even more difficult <laughs> because you don't have at least that one sequence right. to hang it on. Well, or, we've actually broken, um, back to that grid I was talking about, kind of dissected the season into three or four parts um, and with different kind of a mythology, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first, I won't say how many episodes, because that would ruin the, sure. the whatever, I'm so protective of spoilers, as you know. The first chunk of episodes. Um, yeah, the first chunk of episodes is kind of a whodunit a little bit. And then, you know, second part of the season, um, or second chunk of the season, is someone's back, someone's backstory slash history coming okay. back to haunt them. Um, so you kind of, ha- we, we do have to have that, um, what I would almost call a mythology or procedural element mm-hmm. to those, to those, um, those are kind of opposite things, but whatever. Something to drive those right. episodes. Um, and, and to then divide obviously, it up like that I makes it a little it more manageable. Exactly. Um, and then the different you know, dynamics and relationships and who's sleeping with who and mm-hmm. who screwed over who and all of that. Yeah. Kind of. But it's moving those little pieces forward. I'm curious mm-hmm. about how you do this on Magicians. Mm-hmm. Like moving those little pieces forward and finding the right place for them uh, is t- what to me seems very tricky. There's a lot of moving them back and forth between episodes, mm-hmm. actually. Oh, um, things might in jump. In the breaking from, process. In the breaking process, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, among other things, so say you have this you know, juicy twist for the character Alice or this reveal, and then as you get into telling that story, you just realize there's more story. Mm-hmm. And that there's, it's not one turn, it's two turns. And that's why it's so important at the beginning of the season to get a basic roadmap and know where you're ending. So sure. you know what you're back up against. But, you know, in my brain, as we're in the writer's room and we're talking about the the, the sort of seasonal arc and then the individual episodes, I, I feel like we break forwards and backwards and sideways yeah. mm-hmm. sure. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, with magicians, though, it's very serialized. I think because, you know, ultimately Supernatural is a procedural. Right. At least it, I don't. I think it's it was, it still. It was when we were there. It was when we were there, and but it was, it's like, like if you, you pull the yeah. demons off of it, it's still like yeah. basically law enforcement coming to town <laughs> to solve a problem. Um, because of that, my brain is very trained to find discrete story. Like I yeah. want thematic unity, mm-hmm. especially magicians has so many characters and so many storylines, and yeah. has been accused of being very cluttered. And I think of Game <laughs> Does of it Thrones. Feel that way to you guys? No, I love it. Yeah. I think the messiness is part of what makes it the show. And I agree. I don't fight it's it. It's part of the fun. There's some episodes that are like, almost everyone is in this haunted house. <laughs> and then there's somewhere it's like, they're literally on different planets, they're in different timelines. Funny. And I love it because it's a show for genre fans. And yes. people come equipped to... to absorb stories like that. I think you're absolutely right. So, I mean, sometimes I watch Game of Thrones and I really feel like I should just be binging it because I don't always see what what's the scent. Like, those right. episodes don't necessarily have an A story. No. They're just so sprawling mm-hmm. and they have the thematic unity of probably somebody in every scene wants to sit on the throne. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so but they aren't, yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. They're not discreet. Right. I mean, and, and a show that gets released weekly, I feel like you have to be, to an extent, telling yeah. a story mm-hmm. 
that week. Right, okay. so something kind of rises to the top as the A story. Yeah. And in the first season where they were going to class more regularly, mm-hmm. they were graduate students, mm-hmm. there were um, sort of benchmarks of that education that often start, like there's sure. a certain final exam that has to be taken. Right. And that started us out. That now it's more like there's an insurrection and you're the high king of this land and what are you going to do to <laughs> make the peasants stop killing each other? And, um, That's your final exam. Exactly. And then sometimes it's kind of, uh, you know, if you, if you look to the page count, there's equal page weight to four different stories. Mm-hmm. But I have like a personal rule that I don't ever want an episode to leave the writer's room until I'm jealous of it. Hmm. Till I want to be the one to write it myself. That's awesome. yeah. And That's, that yeah. tends to happen when there's like a central nugget of goodness and just coolness and dopeness that like you want. That's why you, oh, we're doing the episode because, you know. Yeah. Um, and that becomes the little beating heart of every episode. And then the rest, I don't, you know, it's like the weirder the better. We don't care. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of filling in and this character does this and how do we make it cool. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I want to hear about, uh, we talked to the Better Call Saul writers recently Mm. and got on this notion of, for a show that's been on for a couple seasons, um, what things you did in the earlier seasons that you wish you could change or things you wish you had set up in earlier seasons that you wish you had. You're, You're nodding, Lindsay. Where have you experienced that? I mean, I think the big lesson we learned was always just go deeper. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid. I think in your comedy, sometimes you're afraid to have heart moments, mm-hmm. and you're afraid if we're not funny for too long, is that going to be okay? Are our viewers going to be able, be able to withstand a scene that's serious and mm-hmm. about something heavy? And I think we learned they are. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like People are, are going to come back to you next week. They know you're a comedy, but you, you don't have to be. I think you know, first season, we were trying to play this dance of like being a family show for ABC, but also we wanted to talk about really sensitive topics um, and now the gloves are off like every week it's just we're, we're reading the news we're taking it all in and we're like we're doing this we're going to talk about homelessness right. we're going to talk about you know yeah. we're doing an episode this week about like the you know uh, working women and we're t- t- tapping into like the pay gap and the wage gap and um, those are things I think we would have been afraid of and it's just so exciting does that comfort come with success whether it's creative success or, or you know viewership or whatever it is, or is Probably, it just an yeah. easing in? Yeah, I mean, in... definitely if we were canceled after doing a heavy episode, <laughs> <laughs> we would never get to do a heavy episode. True, <laughs> I think good point. That's very true. No, I think creatively, if the executives see it and realize, oh, I still really love this episode, even though it's not mm-hmm. the funniest one, mm-hmm. um, then I think you get a chance to do it again because I yeah. think you kind of like seduce them mm-hmm. or like sure in a way. Absolutely, yeah. you show them how good it can be, right? Yeah. Um, I, Again, the same question for mm-hmm. magicians. You're coming into the third season, right, yeah. in January. And as you were breaking that, were you like, oh, no, what did we do in season one? Or is no. there a plan? Or, like, how, yes. how does that work? I promise okay. there's a plan. <laughs> uh, the... I mean, every episode has things I wish I could have a do-over. Mm-hmm. Sure. There was a lot about how to make that show that was really hard. It's really, really? ambitious considering, yeah. right? And the, just the the expansiveness of it and our desire to, you know, bite off the biggest possible bite we can chew without it looking stupid and smaller and not mm-hmm. scopier, right? Um, and I learned a lot of lessons about production the first season. So I don't want to say I didn't learn anything about writing. I did. I, did a lot. Right. I learned a lot. I think the biggest lesson we learned from season one going into season two that has now really served us breaking season three, which mm-hmm. is mostly broken now, is... Um, we we gained confidence mm-hmm. in the story and we started to recognize the crazy carnival that was this particular show. And so 
knowing that, we said, well, season two is going to be more so. And we're not going to, what we don't want to do is do the same season again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We want it to feel different. We want to feel like you're walking into a new world, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And so when season three was going to happen, I have just such a strong sense of smoke them if you got them, you know, which is <laughs> an Eric thing. Yeah. Um, so we took away all of magic at the end of season two because it's like season three will look very different if magic is the sparest commodity in the universe Um, and I wasn't afraid of it I was excited by it when people were like what will happen and I was like I'm not exactly sure but that's Mm -hmm. good because if you unpredictable you know the the rule is if you don't know what's happening next (laughs) then neither does the audience right right? so as a writer though it is uncomfortable you should run out of story as often as possible to force yourself to think of things that might potentially be surprising to the giant render farm out there, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think that's really good advice yeah. and, and something for people to think about. Um, I'm wondering if that was your experience uh, in working on, again, a show like Revenge, which churned mm-hmm. through story. Churned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, again, having been there the length of that show, pretty much, I came in um, around episode, I can't remember, like seven or eight, because mm-hmm. I just had a baby. And um, and Mike Kelly, I remember, um, again, we had a great plan for that first season. Um, I loved it. And then and, um, you know, second season, we, we had introduced the initiative, which was kind of the shadowy cabal, faceless organization. And we had some regrets about that, I think. Really? Um, we talked a lot about, um, you know, how to, uh, how to make an organization mm-hmm. feel real when we can't really see that on the show. It, didn't, hmm. it felt a little different. Um, and again, we had fun with it. That was, I don't remember when, but somewhere in season two. Um, but Mike always talked about how that show really should have been an anthology. And like the first season, mm-hmm. you know, was Emily's Revenge. Mm-hmm. Second season was either related to someone in that world and their separate revenge or a completely different revenge story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have, I think, been really exciting and, and obviously not uh, not a model that ABC <laughs> typically right. does. But and no one was really doing it at the time. Exactly. Either, yeah. So yeah. It would have been, it been ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and then Limitless, you know. Great show. I uh, had so much fun working on it. But again, um, when I came to work for the CW and Dynasty, and I have a lot of respect for Mark Padowitz and what he's done with the network yeah. mm-hmm. and pushing boundaries and, and breaking expectations. And I feel that Limitless could have done really well on that, sh- on that yeah. network. It wouldn't have been... The procedural element, in a way, is what... Is what when you're talking about a show that's Limitless, <laughs> you want to kind of break the chains of a procedural <laughs> in a way um, and have them quit the FBI and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so, you know... Different. That's interesting. Um, I want to shift gears quickly before we run out of time and talk about uh, pitching because all of you guys have pitched. You have all sold shows. Um, I want to hear, uh, Lindsay, why don't you start us off? Because comedy pitches are, are generally pretty different to drama pitches. Yeah, I mean, I am one of those rare birds that I love pitching because uh, I started out in an improv, so it mm-hmm. brings me back to my roots. It's like putting on a show for me. Um, so I love it. And last season, uh, I developed. Um, a show with Tony Collette uh, called Unit Zero, which was basically about like the people at the bottom rung at the CIA mm-hmm. who were kind of forced to go into the field. And it's kind of like the bad news bears of the CIA. Um, and so it was a really fun uh, pitch because it was it was all based on these real women that I had you know researched, and kind of they were all these underdogs in their own different ways. Um, and so when I pitch, I kind of write a script in a way. Mm-hmm. And I know kind of like the thesis statement that I want to grab people with. And then I kind of know some of the jokes I want to hit. And often... I've pitched a lot with teams, so like I have producers, okay. and so we even work out like our bits, like, <laughs> <They don't>. <laughs> like <laughs> and until they feel natural. <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> improvise, and then we totally change them to make them feel natural. Right. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, and, and pitching to and it's a 
huge part of in comedy you're constantly trying to just make sure you're still being truthful mm -hmm. and so your pitch to your point yeah you don't mm -hmm. want it to feel stale you don't want it to feel like you've heard this idea a million times before yeah. how do you look at something through the new lens um and so yeah my pitches are really in depth like i write like 12 or 15 pages i would say like wow. even if it's going to be like a 20 minute pitch yeah. and then i'll kind of edit it out but i'd have like a structure that seems to work for me like i don't know if we want to go in. yeah i can please. go into the nerdy <laughs> details uh, um uh yeah I, go in with what the big idea is and how it's kind of personal to me and what my connection is to it. And then I usually try to talk about, you know, just in the largest form, what the pilot would be about and then what the themes would be about for the series and then kind of go through the main characters and then kind of get to a place where, to your point of like leaving them, like wanting and being jealous of it, like you try <laughs> to get to like what would be all the most like exciting, you know, fantastic yeah. places the show could go. Um, and then along the way, like, I think for me what I found that works is keep it personal and keep connecting mm. it back to you like of why are you telling this story and mm. why you know I'm I'm a new mom and so part of the show I was doing a Tony Collette she was also a new mom in the show and we kept connecting those ideas of being a spy but being a new mom and how they're both really similar because they're both jobs <laughs> you're not prepared for and they're both jobs that are very high stakes and you feel like lives are on the line <laughs> and you're just trying to get through the day and so and seeing her bounce in those two worlds so yeah I would say <clears throat> that's yeah. I lost uh, my train of thought. At the no, end, that makes but, a lot of sense. Yeah. But it also feels like that show specifically um, is a lot more story intensive than maybe another comedy might be. Like I imagine when Kenya was pitching Blackish, it was mostly about His here family. are my characters, mm -hmm. here's my story, and let me make you laugh. And that was such a cool challenge for me. It was my first time <laughs> ever writing a one-hour comedy. Um, mm -hmm. oh, and I didn't realize it was an hour. It was an hour, yeah, and ABC was supportive of that. They wanted to do a light procedural, as they called it, um, and they wanted to do a one-hour comedy, and it became an action comedy that mm -hmm. had like big set pieces, and that was something that was really oh, exciting neat. to me, because comedic actors never get to do that stuff. Like yeah. It was so exciting <laughs> when we got to shoot it. Like All the actors came up to me, and they were like, thank you for writing hand-to-hand -hand combat. Like I've never handled a gun <laughs> before and I was like oh it's my pleasure this is great <laughs> um, you know because normally you know, when you're a comedic actor you're just sitting in a room talking um, which is also great but uh, but the challenge storytelling for me and the thing I learned so much and Richard Haddam uh, came on to the project when we got to shoot it um, and obviously he comes from you know mm -hmm. the procedural world also the genre world and so he was so helpful to me in comedy you don't think about reversals mm -hmm. as much and, and <laughs> big moments to your point of reveals and you reveal small things it's just a different it's a totally yeah. different way of thinking you're always thinking about situation in comedy mm -hmm. and you're not thinking about kind of the, the long fabric of the mm -hmm. character mm -hmm. going forward and he it was really cool working with someone who had so much experience in the one hour space and the two of us kind of just had this really happy chemistry and mm -hmm. uh, yeah that's great. It, it was yeah it was incredible that's cool and I feel like we're we're living in a great time where yeah all of these things can are sort of like we can mash them mm. together and get different kinds of things. Um, but Sally, mm -hmm. tell us about your pitching experience. How do you like to pitch? Well, I was going to ask. I feel like the new thing in pitching <laughs> is now visuals. So, have you? Did you? I, do. I you always bring, in bring boards. boards. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Like, and then I heard some people are now making short films, and I'm like, well, where is this going to stop? Like, where? <laughs> <laughs> make the pilot. Let's go make the show. Let's go make the show before we even pitch it. Um, I like know. that idea actually. I mean, Let's just go make not? the show. Yeah. <laughs> On a dime, why not? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm very 
very similar structure actually to what you were talking about, even though cool. you know for drama. But um, but what is going to make me excited to write the show on a weekly basis because mm-hmm. it's not yeah. just like you're writing a feature and it's right. a one and done thing, but you have to really live this thing hopefully for many years. Um, and so why it's personal to you, why you're excited about it, um, and why you think other people will be excited about it. And then yeah, the, I just remember the boards were such a big deal. I liked I think for Dynasty we had like ten boards that I put. Was it character wow. stuff? Char- yeah, characters, kind of the family that. tree, yeah. um, the different, the setting. We had we had our one percent wasp board just to show because <laughs> that was fun wasp culture, and then um, and then various dynasties that are you know prevalent in today's. Oh culture. my gosh, that's funny. Yeah, it's like right? Instagram era cool. pitching. They, yeah, yeah, it right? kind yeah. of is. I haven't yet done a board. I'm well, sure it's, someone will I, ask me to. So both of these shows uh, that you have going, did you just go in and pitch? I mean, you were obviously brought in on you. Uh, yeah. Um, but you still had to pitch, In right? a way, both of these shows were written on spec, actually. Really? Um, with wow. magicians, John McNamara, my partner on that show, mm-hmm. Michael London, who's a producer, and, and I, we bought the rights to the book with our own money and wrote it in John's mm-hmm. garage. Oh, no kidding. So there was a script that preceded us when we went in. And it doesn't really alter the structure no. of pitching that much, really. Mm-hmm. It's just more about what happens after the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, Which and is a nice time saver, presuming they they've to, read it. <laughs> yeah, and then like what they want you to change about the pilot, because a little of that will happen. But I'm like you. I want to be very prepared. My mm-hmm. background is in acting as well. And... I can't be over-prepared for something. I can feel <laughs> off the cut because I always forget. I always have that blank. Just for the record, right. there will always be a moment, <laughs> possibly for the rest of my career, in a pitch where I just blank out. And at this point, it happens, and I just tell the president of whatever network I'm speaking to that this is the <laughs> moment in the pitch where I blank out. Give me a second. So hopefully... Yeah, it's a little embarrassing, but, um, but it's true. It makes you human. Maybe someone else feels better <laughs> hearing that because right, I do absolutely. it every single we time because I just I'm ner- I'm still nervous. The craziest thing. Um, oh, and the reason I say that about you is because you with air quotes the show <laughs> because we we did sell a pitch. Greg Berlanti and I went in mm-hmm. and pitched it and we sold it to Showtime and then um, developed it there, wrote, wrote a script there, and then from this is why it took so many years and why I'm in this slightly unusual situation sure. where both shows are in production at once. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a couple years to kind of go through that process and ultimately the changes that they asked for made us realize that we wanted something different than them and we parted huh. friends and they were very. You know, gracious and supportive, and allowed us to take the script. And then at that point, Lifetime just bought the script um, to go straight to series. Right. So it was almost like we had written it on spec, <laughs> in that right. we came with like a show ready to go. Yeah. But when we were pitching you, because it is a show about a guy who does stalking. Um, we stalked one person in that room. Um, and by stalking, I just mean oh, love really that. We, we picked someone we knew would be in the room, <laughs> yep. and we went to their Facebook Absolutely. and their Twitter, and we kind of, with the help of assistants who worked a lot on this, um, Greg and I kind of put together, here's what we know about you, Susan, Susan Rovner, that for example. Brilliant. And, and, and it's nothing that anyone no. with right. an access to the internet wouldn't be able to find out about you. But I have to say, like to this day, I'll go into like HBO, and they'll be like, you're that... Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, like they're scared of me. They're like you're yeah. stuck because it was um, it was a little frightening. Sure, what we were able to find about That's people amazing. without doing without paying a right. dollar, without right. hiring someone, yeah. without technically without violating their privacy. Mm-hmm. No, they're um, putting that out there. But that so was effective gimmick. for the pitch because you're really getting them is. in the headspace. Maybe too of, effective. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, thing short I've ever term heard. shows on the air. Long term, <laughs> I may never work again. We'll see what happens. Worth That's it. really funny. <laughs> yeah. I love that. But you know, like the, I, I think that at the heart, the thing that b- both of you guys said that I really agree with is um, 
I mean, look, there is no shame in pitching a show because you want a sh- you want money, you want someone to pay you to write a show, you right. want a show on the air so your career can be successful. And I had many years early in my career when I probably would have pitched anything they asked me to pitch. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a different skill set. That is about embracing I am a professional writer mm-hmm. and this is my job and my career. I care about that. And what I'm going to lead with is I'm going to work hard and do a brilliant job and I'm going to find what's special about this. Mm-hmm. When you've been doing it for a while, you maybe get in this very fortunate position where you can say no to things you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And at least some of the time. Right. Or you <laughs> right? can chase the things you do yeah, want to do. Yeah, and that you can say, okay, so now what I would really like to do, especially in this quote-unquote peak TV era mm-hmm. where there's just a, a lot of places to sell things mm-hmm. and you can sell more niche content, I feel like I don't ever want to go pitch something I don't have like a burning desire to write mm-hmm. and I don't really have something to say about. Mm-hmm. And I always just lead with that, yeah. that, you know, this is why I'm fucking dying to write this. Mm-hmm. This is why mm-hmm. I could yeah. easily write 100 episodes of this because I'm mm-hmm. so angry about it or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, I have so much to say about this world, yeah. this situation, these characters, whatever. It is. Because you're selling, you're selling the idea. Mm-hmm. You're selling the premise. You're selling the brilliant pilot that will make everybody talk. You're selling mm-hmm. the idea that the show can go on for seasons and seasons and mm-hmm. not die a terrible death. And you're also selling, like... What is your vision? Why are you the visionary? Why are you? Because why should they not just take buy that idea from you and hand right. it to somebody with more experience? And it's right. because like you care more about it than anyone. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm sure it's fakeable, but I, I try to. <laughs> no, pick, it's hard. You know, projects where yeah. I don't have to fake that. Yeah. Because it really will bite you in the ass. Because then it becomes homework, and then it becomes right. depressing that you're at the office 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right. working on something you don't love. Yeah. And I think yeah. that is transferable advice to people who mm-hmm. are maybe writing their first mm-hmm. spec pilot mm-hmm. or something. Like, write yeah. that script that only you can write that you care the most mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's interesting when you're talking to writers who are sort of just starting out. Because I'm a little of two minds. I mean, I think you can't fake passion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you're interested, really interested in something, it will show mm-hmm. in your script. It'll be interesting to yeah. me because you'll probably tell me something I've never heard about, like Absolutely. ancient Egypt or whatever. <laughs> or a um, point of view that I yeah. haven't considered or right. something, yeah. But I like the other part of me is quite pragmatic about the fact that this is not a career you get into to like peak in two years. Mm-hmm. Sure. It takes a really long time to learn how to write. Even something like TV is like really, yeah. it's, it, there's a lot of aspects of craft to it. And I think about that 10,000 hour thing and mm-hmm. I'm just sort of like, Okay, if you're young and you're starting, you're like, what do I write? Like, don't overthink what you're writing your pilot about. Just stand and write it because you have to write a bunch of pilots to get really good at writing pilots anyway. Mm -hmm. So practice writing a pilot. Practice finishing a pilot. Practice writing a pilot. You (laughs) discover you hate and you never want to fucking write that again. Then you never have to do that one again. The only way to learn to write is to write. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Let's wrap up. Uh, These are all great things. We could go another hour, you guys. Well, we do need to wrap up, and I want to ask you uh, what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What is your room talking about? What is your uh, family talking about? Uh, Sally, we'll, we'll start with you, and we'll go around. <laughs> I'll bring up Game of Thrones. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned how you wish you were avenging it. I have the fortune of, since I had two children, young children, and work, I really missed out on the trend of Game of Thrones. So I just started watching it and binging it, <laughs> and it's amazing. Um, but also, I watched, I'm watching it because it's relevant to Dynasty, because it's sure, about sure. dynasties. Mm-hmm. And... Um, before the Red Wedding, there was Moldavian Massacre. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, I'm very into that right now. And then, um, and that's really all I have time for. I try to like preserve one show that makes me happy to come home that's and crazy. maybe watch an hour before I pass out. Um, sure. And that's it. Good. That's yeah. cool. Uh, I'm obsessed with Nathan for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you saw the first episode no. of the season. This is the one where he revisited the people he had. Well, been that was asked. great. That, that was, was like a, special, a little teaser, right? yeah. and then now the first episode just dropped. And nice. it, I mean, I just think he's doing something that no other comedian is doing, which is yeah. he's letting story find him, and then following it, and somehow he's gotten Comedy Central <laughs> to say okay to that. And it's amazing that they take two years to do one season, but it's like it shows. Like they're all just so. Uh, there's something about the the awkwardness and the, like the loneliness of his comedy that I think is really profound. So that is one of the only when I ask comedy writers what they're watching, that's one of the only comedies they mention because generally most comedy writers are watching dramas and yes. vice versa. But the comedy writers love Nathan for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I, I that's that's the big one for you. That's the big one for me. I mean, I I'm the same. I watch <laughs> all the dramas too. Sure. Because so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Game of Thrones is probably the one that the writer's room spends the most time talking about. It's like, I think you could make about six or seven episodes, maybe, of magicians for the cost of one episode of Game of Thrones. So there's a lot of just like (laughs) dragon VFX jealousy (laughs) in the writer. But also the thing that, um, and I'm I'm really not being a Pollyanna, it's true. It's like when they figure out how to do something and they have all the money in the Mm. world to do it, then like cut to a year later and we can do it for a tenth of the cost because that's kind of how VFX works. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude (laughs) to Game of Thrones. That's um, funny. I never thought about that. The show that I have watched, I don't have time to watch TV right now, but um, the last thing I watched that really moved me was Fleabag. Did yes. you see that? Yes. So yeah. Yes. And it, it took me by surprise. I really mm-hmm. thought I was just watching like a light comedy about a girl who, you know, fucks a lot of different guys <laughs> and talks to, the, talks to you while she's getting banged. Right. And um, by the end, I was just bawling. It's harrowing. And... I, I sat down with some friends, uh, uh, like just a few weeks ago, and I said, "I just like I'll just watch the first one with you, but you can binge it really quick." And I ended up watching the whole fucking thing with them again <laughs> over one evening because we couldn't yeah. stop. It's easy to do. I'm yeah. just so impressed with it. But I think it, it's, it's so beautiful and yeah. deep and mm-hmm. specific, and um, and it's funny, like as hilarious. emotionally wrenching as it can be. It's yeah. actually really funny, which I feel like is missing from a lot of these comedies that are not quite comedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fleabag gets to have that. Uh, yeah. As does Catastrophe. Did you watch Catastrophe? No, that's next. Check it out. Yeah. I love it. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. I appreciate thank it. Good you. luck with all of your endeavors. Uh, I'm excited for all of them. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Now leaving Nerdist.com.